Welcome to the RE Podcast, the first dedicated RE podcast for students and teachers. So everybody better get comfortable then. <laughs> get, <laughs> get a cup, a cup of, of tea. tea. Like, okay. Pause, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, according to the sort of Eastern Orthodox tradition itself, um, the history of the Orthodox Church can be traced back to Jesus and the Apostles. So there's this idea of sort of succession, the Apostles appointing successors who became bishops who some became Pope eventually. And then that started this sort of apostolic succession. And then there was this series of ecumenical councils that I'm sure we're aware of. And they helped to form the Orthodox Church. And then by about the 8th century, it reached the form that you will see it in today, which blows my mind because <laughs> that's a long time ago. So those ecumenical councils sort of resolved a lot of the doctrinal issues and they rejected a lot of heresies and heretics. So you get little stories in Orthodox canon in terms of which saints said this, which councils, etc. So the first bit's an audio play. The second bit, we shamelessly stole the Cullum St. Gabriel's in conversation model. And we got together groups of experts and worldview practitioners and various other people with an interest in this to discuss the themes that were coming out of the audio play with an eye on how we could represent different perspectives on that particular thing. And then the last section is an immersive soundscape, because we really wanted children and young people who can't access this worldview to have a sense of what it might be like to be in it. So we've launched two so far. The first one looks at the experience of a white British revert to a Muslim worldview in North Lincolnshire. And the second one looks at the experience of two young black evangelical Christians in Bristol. I think with Romans as well, the context in which it is can easily be disregarded because people will just read it and say, well, it clearly says that it's unnatural. It clearly says this, Mm. it clearly says that. But nothing about it is clear, like nothing. And it's like if we was, you know, to take other scriptures, like, for example, about women, or divorce for example those scriptures okay are very very clear Mm. but for those oh let's do an exegesis of those scriptures let's figure out what was really going on at the time let's figure out why women should be in a position of power in the church let's see why we should allow divorce for any circumstance and that still be okay but when it comes to homosexuality nobody wants to bother like nobody wants to have that conversation. And that's what I found with the excuses that I did on this. Do you think there are unforgivable sins? Well, that is a massive question. We could spend two hours debating that. Yes. I mean, obviously, if you go to the scriptures, I am a vicar, you have the unforgivable sin, which is the sin against the Holy Spirit. And it's been debated for 2000 years. What does that actually mean? Mm. For me, I think that it is the point where you are unable to accept your own wrongdoing, unable to apologize. As a Christian, we believe that it is God that leads us to repentance. And so I think that the unforgivable sin is the one that you don't ask for forgiveness for. And that is where you are denying God's place to guide you to acceptance of wrongdoing and to ask for forgiveness. But then if we're talking about Happy Valley, you've got all sorts of different characters who have different relationships with forgiveness. So the Baha'i Faith is an independent world religion. 
it's recognized as such by the United Nations. So it's not classed as a cult or a sect or a division or anything like that. It's an independent religion. And it was established not even 200 years ago in the mid-1800s by a person who took the title Baha'u'llah, which literally translates as the glory of God. And it started off in Persia, which is now Iran, and can now be found across the world in every country, every territory, nation. There are Baha'is there, even if it's just a handful. But there are Baha'is around the world, all over. And what are the distinct beliefs? I mean, what sort of defines the Baha'i faith from maybe other faiths? So I think the first thing, the strongest teaching, if you like, is oneness. And oneness goes through everything. I like to think of humanism as being defined by three primary values. Compassion, reason, and hope. Compassion, I think of as our commitment to the equal dignity and worth of every person. So humanists believe basically that every person is equally morally valuable and that we have a responsibility to create a world in which the equal moral value of every person is respected. And obviously we don't live in a world like that right now, so we have a lot of work to do. And that's relevant to what we're going to discuss about social justice. Reason is the idea that human beings can, using our own intellect and the tools of science, reason, philosophy, the arts, humanities, all the ways that human beings have come up with to understand the world, make progress in our intellectual pursuits that we don't need to rely on tradition. So let's just have a quick look then at the sort of purpose of this episode, which is to look at P for C. Can you just tell us what P for C is? Yeah, no, um, it, it goes by a number of names, actually. I mean, in the UK, it's called P for C, which is a sort of an acronym for philosophy for children. In Australia, we call it philosophy in schools. And it's also known as philosophy with children. You know, and there are many other names by which it goes by as well. But, but fundamentally, it's, it's the same. I mean, it's, it's a pedagogy when it all comes down to it. And it's a pedagogy that's, that's dialogue-based. And it really teaches and empowers, I think is probably the right word, rather than teaches, students to engage in a, in a respectful, meaningful dialogue with their peers. And it gives them the opportunity to engage in some you know, deep, high-level thinking. And also to develop, you know, skills of tolerance and respect and, and understanding and, you know, skills which are really, really highly valued in the modern world, certainly in the, in the world of, of AI in terms of where it's coming from. Just spend as much time as you can kind of doing retrieval with students, I think, and plan it, plan retrieval. Don't kind of leave it. Use homework to your advantage. Structure it. Certainly don't ever just say to students, your homework is to revise. Make it really specific, make it really clear the topic you're covering, how it's going to help them, because then it provides this kind of big picture. We're providing a big picture. We're covering everything so that they walk in that exam totally confident and they walk out happy. Matt? I'm going to go right back to what I said at the beginning. It's, it's all about the preparation. If you can prepare your students well, if you can prepare your lessons well, everything should run smoother than what they would have done. Mm. Not every day is going to be a smooth day. Not every day is going to be brilliant. But the good days will far outweigh the bad, I think, on that. Yeah. So it feels like you're very passionate about your job. You're very passionate about RE and you're very passionate to see it become even better than it already is. Yeah, no, I think the passion that you have for the subject and just being a lifelong learner is definitely something that I try and bring to the classroom because we want students to be 
passionate about what they're studying and recognize its value and see its significance. And I think that the source of that is the teacher at the front of the room. So if we can present enthusiasm and passion and a intellectual curiosity about what we're teaching students, the, the hope is that they take that on board themselves and we're sowing the seeds for the next generation of theologians, philosophers, and maybe even RE teachers. Oh, that is the dream. It's so lovely, isn't it? When ex-students come back and go, can I come and spend some time with you? Because I'm thinking of becoming an RE teacher. It's just the greatest privilege. So I'm a gifted ed specialist teacher, but I don't spend my whole day teaching. Um, I'm teaching RE at the moment, but the biggest part of my job is I've set up my own business where I'm teaching philosophy through Lego Serious Play. So it's a combination of thinking and building and talking through building. And my driving passion for doing that is both the philosophy and I get to play with Lego all day. But I have a real passion for working with twice exceptional children. So children who are gifted with a learning disability. So being able to engage in something at a very high cognitive level but also has other sensory inputs and other metaphors and other ways of communicating sometimes really complex concepts has been fantastic fun. What I want to talk about now is sort of just pedagogy. Mm. So we've done loads of work on how to teach this. So we know what we have to teach, mm-hmm. how is best to teach it. So what different types of pedagogy have we found effective? So anything that is direct and explicit And what I mean by that is, again, I mentioned before, we're at a disadvantage by not having a national curriculum. I do believe it's a disadvantage because it just leaves too much to be assumed and it doesn't give enough direction to teachers. And so we have had to be incredibly clear about what we are teaching and how we are teaching it. And so for me, the best form of pedagogy is absolute clarity. So knowing exactly what we want to deliver in knowing exactly how we're going to do it and being really clear with the children about exactly what success looks like. So we have found really effective pedagogy to be direct instruction, guided reading, using etymology, morphology, model answers. Let's just start with what makes a successful RE department? What does that look like? I think first and foremost, it comes down to having a really great curriculum and knowing that this is something that is not going to happen overnight it's something that is going to very much evolve as time goes on so when I first started in my position the curriculum I would say was genuinely not fit for purpose and for us to get it to the stage where we are actually happy with it took about five years and therefore it's been a huge journey getting to a point where it is a curriculum that we believe is ambitious is rigorous, is something that we are really proud of. And being aware of the fact that that is something that is going to take time, I think it is really important. And having everybody invested in that as well. So one of the other things that I think is really important is to ensure that you have a really strong vision. 